Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. A few years back, I hired a marketing consultant to help me strategize the best ways of promoting my book and my work. And after cashing the rather large check I'd written her, and apparently performing some analysis beforehand, she sent me an email to pre-inform me that she had news I wasn't going to like. And when we connected by phone the next day, she gave it to me bluntly, in no uncertain terms. She told me she believed my speaking and consulting career would be a complete failure if I continued using the word heart in my discussions with companies and their CEOs. Now, while it might surprise you to hear this, I knew there was some truth in the guidance she was giving me. I knew from my own career experience that the word heart has always been treated as a third rail in business. For years upon years, we've taught workplace managers to keep the heart out of leadership, and leading with any degree of heart has always been seen as soft and weak management. I'm sorry to say that no one in the world is going to take you seriously, my consultant told me. And since you're paying for my advice, I recommend you start using the expression killer engagement and never use the word heart in conversation again. Reminding you that you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast, you need not wonder if I took my consultant's advice, but it's specifically because of the work of today's podcast guest that I had the courage to stick to my convictions and plow on. For the past three decades, Dr. Roland McCready has been on the forefront of the research that is proving the heart that resides in all our chest is much more than a blood pump. And as co-founder of the globally known Institute of Heart Math, Dr. McCready's work shows that the heart not only influences human choices, but does so through signals it sends directly to the brain. And more to the point for our focus of leadership, heart math's work has led to the discovery that more than anything else, feelings and emotions drive human behavior, what people care about and commit to most in their lives. And consequently, how workplace managers make people feel plays the greatest role in driving employee engagement. In other words, engagement is really a decision made by the heart. Now, there's no question that the idea of bringing heart into leadership remains misunderstood and even rejected in many workplaces. And so it's an honor for me to welcome to the podcast a researcher whose work shows we've always had it wrong. And rather than be a weakness, leading with greater balance of mind and heart is really the only way we can ever fully restore employee engagement across the world. And so it's wonderful to be speaking with you again, Roland, and welcome to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Thanks, Mark. It's great to uh, be here. Well, I'm always curious as to what life experiences most influence people, you know, our guests to choose their careers. So as someone who has the experience of researching the heart's intelligence for the past three decades, rather uniquely, can you start out by telling us what led you to pursue this work? Sure. I mean, I'll try and make a long story short and just kind of give the more salient points. I mean, I started out, I guess, my professional career as a communication engineer. I used to work for Motorola, et cetera, et cetera, and realized that I was really more of a, an entrepreneur type mentality and have been a, what you would call a repeat or serial entrepreneur for a lot of my career. Uh, and I, everything that I really got involved in in that respect was quite successful. I won't go into, into all the history, but the one immediately that's probably the most relevant to our podcast today was the one uh, prior to um, selling a company and, and uh, helping uh, Doc Childry um, launch HeartMath. It's an electrostatics problem-solving company, and, and we grew very fast. Uh, started in a you know very small little room and grew to, a, I think, a $15 million a year company within three years and fit into new technologies for solving some very serious problems in the, in the field of electrostatics. Uh, semiconductor manufacturing and also assembly. And a lot of our work involved, I, I would have to interface, and these were huge multi-million dollar systems that we would install in large factories. And and especially the, the not just, but especially the automotive industry, we had a lot of traction in. So I was interfacing from plant managers to union heads to, you know, the people right on the factory floors in the, in the process of getting our, our equipment installed. And I was amazed at the level of past dysfunction, I mean, outright hostility in some cases that was going on within these organizations. And I remember thinking to myself, more than, more, on more than one occasion, how do these companies stay in business? 
I, I just didn't get it. And this was at a time prior to uh, the automotive industry taking a pretty deep dive, actually. Uh, so I, my in, intuitions there were right. Some serious changes had to be made. Anyway, long story short, it was a very fun business, very good ride. But I then uh, met Doc Childry, and I should also add through this, I was um, never got into New Age stuff. That was never my thing because you know, it's too grounded in traditional science. But anyway, I've tried meditation and was probably never very good at it, but I was sincere about it and had been meditating for quite a number of years. And through some other friends, met this guy named Doc Childry. And I was going to go spend an hour, meet this guy, and, and I ended up spending three days hanging out with him. So I was just fascinated by what he, his uh, life experience had been and, and what he was talking about in terms of the heart. But looking at the heart more than just a metaphor or the way New Age does or this kind of thing as a soft, mushy thing, but as a source of intelligence and uh, what he called the business heart. Because the heart, when you get into what we really mean by that, it's really about business. It's how do we really manage the mind and emotions from a higher level of consciousness because it takes another type of power and intelligence to finally bring the mind and emotions into alignment with our own deeper self of who we really are, which it takes a business band. It's a very kind of male frequency in a way that can finally wrestle the, the, the what we call the emotions into alignment. Anyway, the, so I it intrigued me and I started trying some of the ideas and concepts in my own life. And I can honestly say that I made more personal progress in many areas of my life in three months than I had in many years of meditative and those kind of practices that got my attention. So I started integrating those into my company best I could. This is long before there were formal training processes and programs and things. And it made a big, serious impact there. I was, at that time, I think I had about 80 people that reported directly to me in my my company and I had a partner who managed the other half anyway so long story short my own inner guidance was that uh, this was a more fulfilling path for me in my career so I basically sold that company and helped found HeartMath and then had to go learn about psychophysiology and get another degree and so on so hopefully that gives you a kind of a, a short uh, version of it what was the dysfunction that you experienced in the automotive industry? And in a practical sense, what were the things that you did in response to your conversation with Doc Childre, again, the co-founder of HeartMath? What were the things that you did from a practical standpoint that made you more effective as a leader? I think that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, well, you've got a couple of questions there. I mean, first of all, it wasn't just the automotive industry, but it was especially acute in the automotive industry. Like I said, it was just a hostility. There was very little cooperation going on. And at that time, there was a kind of a battle, I guess, between unions and management and, and how that played out. People didn't treat each other well. And it was just crazy stuff that went on. You know, you'd, you'd want to move a pipe to get a forklift in a certain place. And, you know, it'd be five people standing around saying, oh, we can't do that. That's not in our job description. So somebody would have to drive from another building, you know, get there 45 minutes later to move a piece of pipe. I mean, it was just nuts, that kind of stuff. It's hard to describe, but it was a general tone and attitude in the workplace. Even as coming in as a contractor, a well-paid contractor, it was not an environment you felt good even being in. I can't imagine how anybody would even want to come to work there, let alone come to work with and kind of a saying I'll use here is put your heart into it, you know, to really be engaged in whatever their job was at almost any level. So what was it that you did in response to your meeting with Doc Childre that led you to have greater influence over people and made you feel more successful as a manager? This may sound soft and fluffy, but it's not. It was really taking seriously the concept of the heart being an access point to a deeper wisdom and a deeper intelligence rather than just, you know, through, like I said, I studied some meditative practices and, and they all talk about the heart and but it's this kind of fluffy metaphor thing. But Doc was saying, and I won't go into his story, but he had a, a, a reason that he got to that level or perspective in his own life, but taking it more seriously. So I actually started literally asking my heart and my higher intelligence what would be a better choice in a number of business decisions and then having the courage to follow that because it certainly wasn't always in alignment with what my head you know, or left brain, if you want to call it that, was saying. Then the next phase for me was learning, uh, well, to have the courage to follow it. And sometimes you had to let the dust settle from the decisions. But I can honestly say now in hindsight, every time I've done that, 
it's been the right decision, both for me personally and for the business choices. Well, you know, as far as the history of the heart that I've read and the research that I've read around 300 years ago, there was a declaration in science that I think they actually opened up a heart for the first time and could see no evidence that there was any cognitive ability there or any sense of intelligence that they decreed that the heart was essentially a blood pump. And so since then, obviously in the last 20, 30 years, there have been some discoveries that have helped to refute this and change our perspective. But I don't think they're very commonly understood. So I'm wondering if you can kind of give us the highlights of what has been discovered about the heart and how it influences human behavior. Sure, I can do that. Uh, you mean the 300 years thing I think is debatable, it, but it really doesn't matter. It's sort of a quibble of when, where, and how, what happened there. One thing you said, it kind of made me laugh inside. You cut open a heart and what are the signs of intelligence? Well, I would challenge anybody that didn't really know current science and uh, belief systems to put a brain on a table and a heart on a table and cut them open and prove to me how either one of those had any signs of intelligence. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. I mean, how, how can you? Yeah. You really can't do it. And even if we look at the heart from what we now know is that the human heart has what's called the, the intrinsic cardiac nervous system, uh, which has been declared the heart brain. And this is not a metaphor. This neural structure in the heart has all the same functions as a brain, which is why the field of neurocardiology declared it as a, a literal heart brain. They don't mean this is a metaphor. So the neural system in the heart has long-term memory, short-term memory, neuroplasticity, neurogenesis, you know, all the things that you would ascribe to an actual, you know, the brain that in our head. But the story, um, I'm going to challenge the 300-year thing a little bit. You said... Because even in the field of modern psychology, the guy who's considered the founder of modern psychology, a guy named William James, it was all about the input from the body to the brain and the brain interpreting the signals from the body, especially the heart. And that this psychology was based on this, founded on this very principle up until the late 1800s. So it wasn't really until 19, late 1920s, early 30s, that from a psychological perspective, that that really shifted. And this is just at the time, keep in mind that they were just discovering the first hormone around this same time period. And in hindsight, looking back, some of the experiments that led to this idea that it's all about the brain, this is sort of really what they, where the paradigm shifted, is the idea that you could cut the head off theoretically, and if you could give it the blood flow and oxygen it needed, that the brain would be able to function and have uh, emotional experience and cognition and all these things. And that was the paradigm shift, really, that's more relevant here. And that became a dominant paradigm really until the 1970s. Nobody believes that anymore. It's utter nonsense. We now know that the brain is, in fact, largely interpreting the signals from the body and especially the heart in creating our cognitive decisions, our emotional experience. The brain is not in isolation from the rest of the body. And what's going on in, in our body systems profoundly affects our decision making, how well we feel, our emotional textures in life and, and so on. So the kind of key experiments that really started shifting the paradigm you're asking about were done in the late 60s, early 70s. And what was discovered then built on some previous knowledge that, in fact, the heart actually sends more information to the brain than the other way around, neurologically speaking. This, is, this has been known since the late 1800s. It's just basic anatomy. It's an absolute fact, although a lot of people don't know it or understand it. But what happened in this that time period of the 70s I'm referring to is it was discovered that the, I'm going to call it the quality to, to, to not get too deep into the science here, but the quality of the neural signals that the heart was sending to the brain profoundly affects brain function and mental function, cognition. And what they even found in reliably and repeatedly that the heart somehow seemed to know in advance what it needed to do to prepare the brain for its next activities. And of course, this was directly against the paradigm of the day and created a lot of disbelief and argument. But that particular research group ended up being proven right through their career and won all kinds of awards and became one of the most famous hypotheses in the field of psychophysiology, is that the heart modulates brain function in a causal way. So dial forward, you know, many years past, that's a lot of other research groups got involved and 
and the neural mechanisms of why and how that all works have been well well flushed out now. So the fact is, if we have an upset heart where it's creating chaotic heart rhythms, as we can measure quite easily, it inhibits brain function. Long story short, it's easy to prove this now and understand the mechanisms. When we're in this kind of what we call incoherent, cardiac incoherent state, basically chaotic rhythms that are produced when we're feeling things like overwhelmed, anxious, frustrated, impatient, those types of feelings are reflected directly in the heart rhythms. But what they do is the term that was coined back in the early 70s for the effect is called cortical inhibition. Basically, the, the part of our brain we get paid to go to work for is inhibited. We can't, we literally can't make good decisions. So on the other hand, what we've shown in our lab building on that is that when we can get into the heart into a what we call coherent heart rhythm state, you have the opposite effect, uh, which is called cortical facilitation. So it's um, that's kind of a very fundamental link that I think you're asking about, Mark. Well, I'm going to pause there and let you... Uh, well, you're prompting all sorts of questions in my mind that I guess the first one I have to ask is, why isn't this more commonly understood and accepted? Why do we still believe that the brain is the brain and the heart is the heart, if you will? You know. Well, they are. The heart is the heart and the brain is the brain. Let me make it very clear that I'm not saying it's heart or brain. I'm glad I've got a brain and I want it to work well. All I'm really saying here is that the heart and brain are in very rich and deep communication with each other all the time. Uh, that those two particular organ systems are more interconnected and communicate more closely with each other than any other systems in the human body. So it's really about how do we create a coherent alignment and partnership between the two systems and getting them working together in a harmonious way. I mean, the brain does what it does. I'm not going to take away from that at all. I want mine to work well. My point is, though, to get the brain to really function optimally, you cannot ignore the heart. Well, I was being incredibly inarticulate in expressing what I meant. And really what I was saying is that we still have this belief, I think, that never the twain shall meet. In other yeah, words, right, that, that's really what you're refuting here. Well, absolutely. You know, in some of my writings and book chapters and things I've written over the years, this goes, uh, you know, the history of it, this, this goes far back into early history, you know, all the way back to the Greeks. You know, the battle between the mind and emotions, how it's sometimes put. And this is where a big mistake happens, is that we associate Valentine's Day, soppy, you know, uncontrolled emotions with the heart. And nothing could be farther from the truth that all of those kind of, um, you know, like the anxieties, the impatience, those, that's all brain. And the heart's really more about business of really uh, energy management in the system. It's very efficient. So, I mean, we can take the conversation two ways. We can stick to the physiology, which nobody can refute now. But then there's also the psychological aspects of what we mean by heart intelligence. We really can't put a thought, an emotion, an intuition under a microscope. But we all know we have them. That's kind of the space that's a little harder to kind of prove some of this in a lab setting. But the physiology, we can. Well, I think what I'd like to do, Roland, is to transition the discussion anyway, because our audience is primarily made up of managers, leaders, CEOs, et cetera, who are interested in how this actually applies day to day. What I'd like to explore with you is really how do you take this information and apply it to managing people? So reflect on your experience with the automotive industry and what you saw with this dysfunction with these people who are patently disengaged and actually angrily disengaged. What led that? What influenced that behavior? And what's the antidote? How do you take this information and apply it to becoming an excellent leader? That's a great question. And that's something we do every day here at HeartMath. Uh, we have many training programs and work with many corporations now and leaders around the world, actually and exactly how to do that. And what we really are teaching them is how, well, first to become more self-aware. What is really going on? And this is true for everybody, but especially men, is that we're disassociated from our body and our emotions in general. We, so there's a lot going on under the radar. You know, I mean, and I was guilty of that myself. And so if that's going on, our, our thoughts and decision-making processes are being profoundly biased without our knowledge. And as we learn to become more self-aware of what we're actually 
feeling and what our intuitions and, and so on really are, then we can start to shift them, deal with them. And that is actually easier to do than most people believe. They just haven't been taught how. So we've developed a number of techniques that allow people to actually shift their physiology, which we can measure quite easily and have devices that will actually give you feedback in real time into a coherent state, what we call coherent state. And that uh, literally means more harmonious activity in our brain and nervous system in a measurable way. Again, I don't want to get into too much science here, but the neural structures in the brain that are involved in and underlie things like decision-making, foresight, these types of really important skills, if the neural machinery that underlies those is out of sync, literally, they don't perform optimally. So getting our physiology coherent maximizes the brain. But to do that, you actually have to also focus on the heart and get the heart rhythms coherent. And then you, you have the system working together, and that greatly facilitates decision-making and how to talk to people, all these types of things. It ends up under the radar in a way expanding our care, our compassion, our ability to understand why somebody might be thinking or feeling what they are so that we can make a better response to better motivate those people to make better choices. I, I can go on and on here, but I'm, I'm starting to ramble a little bit. So. Well, I think what you're saying is that by balancing this this heart and mind, actually, let's face it, most managers, many managers will say, are really focused on their their brain. They're focused on making sure. making decisions with their brains and they're not really thinking about what the heart is trying to inform them. And you're saying by allowing the heart to influence you, you actually have better integration with the people that you're managing because you're being more human with them. You're having greater influence with them because you understand where they're coming from. You're dissipating any conflicts that before they can become the kind that you experienced in your earlier part of your career. All of this by virtue of the fact that you're connecting into who you are as a human being, right? Yeah. Is that is that a good summary? It is. You said it better than I did because you took it to where I was actually going to go next. Let me repeat it in a way. I'm saying without any of that, what you just said, just learning how to shift our physiology into a coherent state maximizes mental performance and brain function. So we're able to make better choices, be more aware, uh, really increases our consciousness. But uh, at the end of the day is what's really going on and our awareness. That's what I mean by that. Now, part two is when we become more coherent, it also does everything you just said. It increases our, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the word intuition. And some people might say, well, wait a minute, what's intuition got to do with business? Well, let, let me give you one example. We did a number of experiments here in our lab, very rigorous, I won't go into the details, hardcore kind of experiments that showed that the heart is directly involved in intuition of knowing the right choice to make future things and so on. So we published that, got it all peer-reviewed journals and all that stuff. I was then contacted by a, a school actually in Australia that is a, a graduate school in entrepreneurship. And they've been doing years of research in, in this idea of entrepreneurs. And what led them to being so interested is what uh, they've been studying uh, cohorts of, of repeat or serial entrepreneurs, kind of like I was, for many years at MIT and Cambridge and around the world. And the dean of the, the school called me first. He said, well, Roland, I, the reason I'm contacting you is I'm the dean of the School of Entrepreneurship, blah, 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 blah. And what we have found through our research is that the most common characteristic of repeat or serial entrepreneurs, the really successful guys, is that they rely on their intuition in making their final decision. Now, of course, they look at the spreadsheets and use their brains and, and all that. But when the rubber meets the road, it's their intuition they rely on. In fact, it was 80% that said this. And they wanted to then ask if we could collaborate with us to use some of our research methodologies to see if these entrepreneurs had greater, measurably uh, more intuitive capacities than somebody who's risk adverse, you know, your accountant or something. And so we collaborated with them and, and did show that. But I think this is really kind of bridging into what you're asking about now. It, by First, by, by getting more coherent, getting the physiology stabilized and optimized into an optimal state, 
it has another benefit that it literally in a measurable way opens up a channel is the word I'm going to use to our higher capacities to our what I'm going to call our intuition that somehow has a deeper wisdom and knowing about business decisions. Very interestingly, Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winning economist, wrote a book that was the book of the year about five years ago, Thinking Fast and Slow. And obviously he spent you know, good 80% of the book refuting the idea of our instincts, that sometimes we have these biases that we're not aware of, these heuristics, he called them, that interfere with making wise decisions that we're not even aware of. And he showed many of these in examples. But at the very end of his book, he said, there's something about the heart. And I don't know what it is, but my recommendation is, is to do what you just described. As a manager, as a leader, do your analytics, run the data make sure you have poured over and done all the analysis that you can possibly do. And then right before you make your decision, ask your heart. Because it has an information, and this is what you're saying about these entrepreneurs that they're tapping into. So very much an interesting confirmation coming from an entirely different point of view. And I think just to sort of summarize where we are right now, you're saying for part one, because we're gonna talk about how leaders can use this information to become better managers, if you will. But what you're saying is, is that just by connecting into the heart and recognizing that your heart is informing you if you're listening to it, if you're paying attention to it and allowing it to, that it's influencing you in profound ways that are gonna make you more successful as a human being, as a person in all of your interaction, but also as a manager. That's, is that right? Am I summarizing that right before I transition? That's what I'm saying. And as people practice this and give it a try, very quickly, this idea of the heart being a mushy Valentine's Day thing will go away. Because as I kind of said early on, the heart's about business. And it's not about this emotional soppy thing. It's about bringing the emotions into alignment with that deeper wisdom we're talking about. Well, I run into this all the time with people thinking instinctively that there's something soft and weak and sentimental about the heart. And so I appreciate the fact that you're pinning that piece down. But in previous conversations, just to transition again here, you've told me that really the heart is the driver of optimal human performance. I think that's your language. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us about heart mass research into positive, negative emotions and why highly stressful and fear-based workplaces tend to undermine productivity, innovation, and achievement. And when people feel appreciated and supported, cared for, nurtured, all those things, we actually elevate their capacity to do fantastic work. At the most fundamental and simplest level, I've already described it. When you're in a workplace or any environment where you're feeling unappreciated, overwhelmed, impatient, You've got so much interpersonal poor dynamics going on between people. Any of those feelings lead to incoherence in the nervous system, it literally in a measurable way in the brain, which inhibits cortical function. We make poor decisions. We're not motivated. We're disengaged. I mean, it's so simple at that level. When we're feeling appreciated, we're feeling you know, basically good. That is directly associated with the, in a measurable way, I need to keep saying this, the activity in our brain and nervous system that brings it into more coherence and more synchronization. And that leads to cortical facilitation. That, that's the most fundamental answer to your question. And you made a comment earlier, I just wanted to comment before I get marked. You said in some cases we're biased by unconscious processes. Well, I would say that's utter nonsense. We're always biased. I know too much about how the brain works. And those unconscious biases are always present, if I just may add that point. So there are very practical ways through some training that people can learn how to become more physiologically coherent and take that into the workplace. And a byproduct of that, we, we see, you know, I could show you some data where we, we have now a meta-analysis of uh, over 11,000, well, we have two sets of data, one of 11,000 in the healthcare industry, of the changes that happen over a six-week period once you, you start teaching them. And I probably should add that the real way we teach this is better self-regulation. People might have to think about what I'm about to say for a minute, but if you really ponder it deeply, a little deeper, it, it'll, you'll see the truth of it. That statement is that it's failures of our capacity to self-regulate 
that underlie almost all of the problems in modern society, in business and in our society in general. What we're really teaching people is how to better self-regulate. Define self-regulate, if you don't mind. Well, at the simplest level, it's managing our thoughts and emotions and behaviors from a deeper source of intelligence. At a practical level, you know, just to put it in the street for ordinary people, it could be not charging something on your credit card when you're in debt on a budget. If you're trying to lose weight, it's not eating the second piece of cake or whatever when you're on a diet. It's not flying off the handle in a business meeting because somebody says something you don't like uh, and alienating them rather than being able to be more coherent and letting that people feel heard and then coming back with a response that brings them into a dialogue rather than a separative cutoff. So you just made an enemy, things like that. Is there a simple way that you can propose to our audience to launch that process? What would be a recommendation that you would have if you were advising me on becoming more aligned with what you're describing? Yeah, well, I think you already know the answer to that because you've read a lot of our books and processes. But of course, I'm gonna say it involves the heart. And the first step is getting the heart into a coherent state, into a coherent rhythmic activity. And so we have a number of core techniques that allow people to do exactly that. I almost don't want to share the simplest one because it sounds too simple and kind of touchy-feely. But it basically, the first step of most of our techniques is called heart-focused breathing. In fact, breathing techniques are taught in, in training programs. I'll ask a crowd, how many of you have learned a breathing technique? Yeah, usually about half the room have. And you ask, well, in what context? And in the military or police, it's shooting, you know, so you can be a better shot. Lamaze class for some, scuba diving for others, you know, maybe stress management courses. I mean, it's all over the map. So breathing is is so universally taught because it, it, first of all, it works, but it's a way that we can consciously interact with our physiology Although most people teaching breathing techniques don't have a clue of what the real mechanisms are. But the real mechanism is that our breathing rhythm modulates the heart rhythm. So if we breathe at the right rhythm, we can coax the heart into a coherent state. So specific breathing techniques, heart-focused breathing being one of those, takes you very quickly into increased coherence. And that actually stabilizes the nervous system and the activity in the nervous system. So it's the start of the process. And then we, you can then shift ones. If let's say that you're um, in a traffic jam and you're in, feeling impatient and frustrated, well, I mean, a, a question you could ask anybody is, "Hey, is that going to make the traffic move any faster?" And of course, our brain knows, obvious that no, it's not going to make the traffic move any faster. But then ask them, "Okay, do you realize that even those low-level feelings of impatient and frustration are literally setting in motion at least 1,400 biochemical changes in your brain and body?" that deplete energy. Well, is that an intelligent thing to do? Well, of course not. So let's make a better choice. So you start using hard-focused breathing, and then the next step would be to, to consciously breathe what we call a replacement attitude. So you, you actually draw in and breathe in a feeling of patience in that context. And I could, I could give you many, many examples, but so now you've actually shifted the activity in the, in the nervous system and when you add that second step, you're shifting the hormonal patterns that are being released in your body to a very different set of hormones and neurotransmitters that actually regenerate and add energy to the system. So I hope that helps give you kind well, of... Well, it does. I mean, and I don't think there's anything touchy-feely about it. I mean, major organizations are investing lots of money and time to train their employees on meditation to really reduce stress and obviously... Breathing is the cornerstone of that exercise. It's obviously it's one of the things that somebody taught me about speaking years ago is right as I walk on stage, as I'm hearing my name, I take three breaths and it just changes my state completely. So obviously in the course of a podcast, we can't change people's lives, but I think you just left people with a good understanding of something that they can do to center themselves and allow themselves to transition into a higher state and make better decisions. Absolutely, so let's add to that. So heart-focused breathing, you put focus in the, right in the center of your chest, not on the physical heart, but in the center of your chest and pretend you're breathing through that area. Okay, so you could say, okay, doc, you just went yeah, touchy-feely on us. Well, no, I didn't. There's an entire industry based on the well-established fact that where we focus our attention in our body, 
we can cause specific and measurable changes. For example, I could put a sensor on your arm and have you focus attention there. And with practice, you can change blood flow right to that specific area. In the case of heart-focused breathing, we're wanting to shift the rhythms of the heart into a coherent state. So that focus of attention is important. And then you breathe at a rhythm of about four to five seconds on the in-breath and four or five seconds to the out-breath. Literally, that rhythm. And that is the resonant frequency, I'm going to use a science term there, of the heart-brain respiratory system. So we actually have a literal resonant frequency as human beings. And that breathing at that rhythm shifts us into that resonant frequency. And that is a profound shift from a physiological perspective. This is where one graph is worth a thousand words, what's going on inside of our physiology and our body. That's what takes us into that optimal state that's called coherence. Uh, that's the first step. Now, if you just leave it there, that well, that's great, and it's a big benefit, but you need to go on to, to shifting the emotional diet and landscape as well. One of the things that you've told me in the past is that feelings and emotions drive human behavior, what people care about, what they commit to most in their lives. Absolutely. So based on that, guide me. I'm a manager of people. I want to draw out their greatness. I want them to use your language put their heart into their work, to be fully engaged, to be excited about coming into work. How do I create that, knowing what you know? Well, you probably know some of the literature better than I do, Mark, on on the effects that you're asking about. In almost all the studies I'm aware of, how much money people make is not in the even in the top three or four of the priorities for, for their work life, things like the things that we think do. It's feeling that you have a purpose, a greater purpose, and when you go to work, that you're appreciated, that your contributions are acknowledged and appreciated. These are the things that engage and motivate people. So as a good manager, you learn something about people and actually care about them. Have enough care to to find out what do they care about, what motivates them, what is their purpose in life, and reinforce that. Become, and I'm not saying everybody's gotta become best friends, that's not my message but at least care enough to get to know people and treat them with respect. Well, you know, I think about where we are today and language that's being used in business that just patently didn't exist two, three, four years ago. I mean, we're, we're using words like compassion and empathy, connection, meaning, you said purpose. These are words that that we have not been using. And now all of a sudden, they seem to be elevated, at least in some workplaces. I see largely in the technology world, which I find interesting, that these startup companies that have huge influence in our lives, that the workplaces are using these words freely without any concern about looking silly or looking soft. What's happening here and why are these things important anyway? In other words, we've sort of refuted them as being important for a very long time. And now some organizations are saying they're very important, but I don't think they're fully embraced in the mainstream. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are in terms of what it's going to take for people to accept that being more human in this respect is actually a great asset in management. Yeah, well, partly of it's a paradigm shift, and you know, there's a saying in science that for the new paradigm to be established, the old guard has to die off. And that's probably true in business as well, because I'm here in Northern California, so I'm very aware of the technology companies. And it's not just the technology companies. Was, uh, a couple of years ago, I was actually talking with the human resources manager for, a, I won't mention the name, but a really, really, really big construction company. Everybody would know who who it is. And he was telling me that they've changed their hiring practices. They now hire primarily based, I mean, of course, you look at the resume and make sure they've got a certain skill set. But on there, you could use the word emotional intelligence, but their ability to get along with people is their number one priority when making a new hire. So we can teach people how to do the stuff, drive this or that, or, or do a lot of the job functions, even the more technical stuff. But if they can't get along with people, if they don't have a certain degree of, of self-regulation and capacity to, to manage themselves, we know they're going to create more disruption and cost us money and be disengaged. Not only disengage themselves, but cause disruption in the rest of the workforce around them. And I, I've heard that from a growing number of human resource managers, but it coming from a hardcore construction company kind of surprised me. 
anyway, I hope that helps answer your, your question, Mark. Your point is well taken that it's certainly not limited to the technology firms. It's just, I think there's sort of a microcosm there. They talk to each other all the time. They're all in Silicon Valley. How does your company operate? What are you doing to attract people? Those kinds of ideas get shared and whether they're affecting mainstream. I mean, there's certainly many, many organizations that I've spoken to that have not come close to thinking like this. Yeah. Um, but I know Ernst & Young is an accountancy consulting firm recognized, and this kind of goes to your point about the, a generation having to die off, that they were hiring, you know, 25, 30-year-old people that had, you know, MBAs and accounting backgrounds and were going to go out and consult. And this was a millennial audience that said, you know, we're not going to work 90-hour weeks in order to prove ourselves. Our values are very different than the previous generation. And this was an organization, as far as I can tell, that said, we're going to respond to this feedback rather than resist it and say, well, you know, you have to pay your dues the way we did and carry on their own traditions. And I think they're a thriving organization simply because they were willing to accept the bottom-up influence than uh, sort of tolerate the top-down mentality, which is, you know, either going to die off or is going to adjust. So they adjusted and very successfully. I agree. In fact, I was going to say something very similar. So I'm glad you shared that. In the high-tech industry where you're really trying to hire really good creative coders, they're all young millennials. And they're saying exactly the same thing, even in our own company in hiring. They're really looking for well, where they put their life energy into something that has a greater purpose in a way. In other words, they want to be involved with organizations that are, for a large part, doing something to help the world is one of the things that I hear directly from that generation, but also from the companies here in the Bay Area that, that are hiring them. And, you know, they want to have meaningful relationships with their coworkers and, you know, actually have a enjoy going to work. Well, it's a big shift and we're not there yet. I want to transition us into something we call the heartbeat round as a way for our audience to learn a little bit more about what shapes your thinking, Roland, and your unique perspective on life. I'd like to ask you, rather than um, long answer questions, this is a list of about 15 quick rapid fire questions, and I'm going to ask you to answer each of them in a heartbeat. So are you game? I'll do my best. All right, here we go. The quality you most admire in other people. Oh, compassionate care. Newspaper and magazine you never miss reading. Uh, new scientist. The best synonym you know for the word heart. Center of one's being. Leader of any era, and this can be from business, government, you name it, that you most admire. Uh, Doc Childry. It's an easy one. Best piece of advice you've ever received. Learning how to discern and follow the heart's intuitive guidance. The quality that derails the most leadership careers? Ooh, um, separation. What does that mean? Well, separation from others, the, the lack of self-regulation to really connect with others. Lack of connection. One book you wished every person on the planet would read? Heart Intelligence. Which is? Uh, that's the name of the book, Heart Intelligence. And who's the writer? Who's the author? Doc Childry, myself, Howard Martin, and Deborah Rosman. Besides love, what does the world need right now? Heart Connections. The aspect of your work from which you draw the greatest personal fulfillment. Oh, interesting one. The most common thing, I'm going to have to answer this a little bit longer, that I hear from people is they say, thank you for your research because it's confirmed what I always believed to be true but didn't have the confidence to know. Fantastic. One lesson that you wish you'd learned a lot earlier in life. Have the courage to follow my heart's directives and promptings. Favorite band or singer? Yeah, I don't really have one. I enjoy all kinds of music. Skill improvement you're working on right now? Well, okay. Uh, staying connected to my own higher capacities, but especially when I don't agree with someone. One word that best defines heart mass workplace culture? Caring. Quote that best captures your personal life philosophy? Oh, God. Um, I have a, a bunch. One, uh, one is you can't beat a man in his own game. Great. Well, thank you for those. We have another tradition on the podcast, which is that we ask our guests to punctuate the discussion with any final thoughts. And I'd like to just sort of shape this again, reminding everyone that this is a leadership podcast and applying everything that you know, knowing that your audiences are, are 
chief executives and senior managers and managers just getting started all the way across the board in terms of experience levels, knowledge levels. What do you want them to know about the most effective way of inspiring, motivating, and influencing people to achieve at their highest levels? Lead by example would be my quick answer. I guess we're out of your quick answer thing, but it really gets down to a lot of what we've talked about here, I think. And, and I would actually encourage people listening to this to actually check out HeartMath in some of our programs to how to become more coherent and connected with their own heart's inner guidance. And once we do that, it spills over into all the areas you just talked about. In terms of day-to-day activities, are there just some that you know that just have a profound influence on keeping people really fully engaged that most people might not know about or need a reminder about? Well, I, I think most people know about them, have read about them, maybe not most, but just don't really do them. Again, it's the same things we've been talking about. It really gets down to really having genuine connections with people and creating a supportive environment where people can get along better and, and win. Uh, in fact, a lot of the surveys we've done in organizations, this reminded me of something else. One of the biggest issues that we saw kind of surprised me, and it uh, was one of the biggest sources of stress or uh, was how the dysfunctional employees are not dealt with if that makes sense. In other words, um, it seems like every work team or, or somebody has you know, somebody who's cynical or really disruptive, but they tend to get promoted to get rid of them. Uh, things like that, that is really disheartening to, to, to people. So having processes to really help heal those type of separations, I think, is, is, well, I'm not think, I know it's one of the critical things. In fact, it's, it's so important we developed it, or we're pilot testing a new program right now called activating the heart of teams actually that's really about how do we clear up some of these undercurrent issues that are going on within teams whether it's a leadership team or just you know the general uh, employee population nobody has brought this up not one of our discussions has anybody made this point and it's really critical i have had the experience in the course of my career of having just remarkable teams, remarkable people, highly committed and super intelligent, caring, people that achieved at extraordinary levels. And then within those teams, there always seemed to be somebody, somehow we managed to attract into the team who wanted to undermine it in some way. And it is definitely within the idea of leading from the heart to weed out people like that, to recognize that there's a poison there, there's a toxicity, and that they're harming the overall effectiveness of the team. But your final point here, I think, is to be able to do that in a caring way to say, you know, that this may not be the right team for you. This may not be the right environment for you because you're not aligned to it. You're not aligned to the values and the culture that we're trying to do. And so let's help you find something else so that it doesn't end up undermining the success of the team. Is, is that a summary of what you just said? Absolutely. And in some cases, it might be helping that person gain some self-regulation skills and, and really understand what they're doing, both to themselves and the team. Uh, and if that doesn't work, yeah, then they, they have to get moved on. And a lot of times, what we've seen is teams become more coherent, to use my language, and, and take these practices in. It will, it will naturally spin those kind of people out. They just don't have the resonance, and it's uncomfortable for them. And they naturally spin out. One of the, the bigger challenges comes is when it's the team leader who's that person. We'll leave that for a different discussion. <laughs> Rowan, I can't thank you enough for coming on. And this last point that you made is really, really wonderful because sometimes managers need the courage to make the hard decisions and they defer it and defer it and defer it and don't realize the harm it's doing to the people that are really trying to carry the water. So um, I really appreciate this and all your other insights and I wish you the best. Yeah, let me make one last comment, if I may, Mark, from what you just said. Yeah, it relates to what I was talking about, the heart being a, a business frequency, if I can use that language here. Because in our trainings, I'll often ask the question, how many of you have had the inner prompting to make the hard choice but just didn't want to? And almost every hand goes up. And that's really what I mean about the heart being business because it really has the right answer. We just don't want to do it a lot of times. Here, here. And that may be firing somebody, right? 
but those things seem, you know, almost inconsistent with the heart, and yet they're totally aligned to it, knowing the impact that it has on the rest of the people there. It's a really great point. And I think we're afraid of what's going to happen in that interaction where we let somebody go that allows us to kick the can down the road. But the best managers see the harm that's done. They're not going to allow it to continue very long and really do great harm. And they end up earning greater respect from their people when when they those people can see that their manager not only had the ability to see the harm that could be done and was potentially going to become even greater, but the willingness and the heart to take action and do that on behalf of them. And I think that is something that becomes a growing pain for most managers. But if you get to the other side of it, you can do this more consistently and I think grow in your career. Absolutely. All right, sir. Thanks again. Take care. Best to you. If my discussion with Roland McCready has you interested in learning even more about the intelligence of the heart, I highly recommend reading the late Dr. Paul Pearsall's book, The Heart's Code. As a professor at the University of Hawaii, he devoted years to researching the heart, and while he was alive, was one of the most sought-after speakers on the planet. I also should ring the plug bell for my own book, as one of its chapters distills everything I've learned from studying all the science and medical discoveries made about the heart over the past several decades. And in both of these books, you'll read some amazing stories about people who received a heart transplant and soon after took on some of their donors' personality traits. Roland mentioned early on that our hearts contain neural cells, brain cells in other words, and these stories serve to confirm that our hearts really can hold on to memories. People who were vegetarian all their lives before getting a new heart became lovers of chicken McNuggets afterwards. A man who was passionate about classical music started liking 50s rock and roll after his transplant. Goethe famously said that, quote, man sees in the world what he carries in his heart, end quote. And I hope today's podcast helps underscore the truth of this. Our hearts really do play an enormous role in influencing our choices and decisions, even when we're completely unaware it's happening. Before I go, I want to thank my Seattle-based team, sound engineer and producer Eric Oz, and website manager Randy Yant, and all of you who have helped this podcast be heard in 86 different countries after just 13 episodes. And until next time, I leave you with the reminder that when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. Mm-hmm.